0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, brought to you by Killer Podcasts and Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm the titular Sean.
1: And I'm the very titular Carrie.
0: It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. And hello, dad of the pod, Paul Ferrante.
2: Glad to be with you guys again.
0: Uh, Absolutely. This is... um, this is your third time joining us on the show, isn't it?
2: Yes, and that is the charm.
0: <laughs> third, yeah, third is the charm, and you were you were quite charming in your first two appearances, so I think I think we're in good hands here. Uh, Caroline, do you want to you're leading our discussion here today? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to fill the listener in on our horrible historical topic for, for this week? <laughs>
1: Sure. Uh, We're going to be doing kind of a loose and fun episode today, but as always, we'll be packing in as many of the facts as we can. Uh, As you might be able to tell, we are on a family vacation right now, but we are determined to serve you the same ain't it scary goodness you're accustomed to hearing on a weekly basis.
0: That's right. I'm not sure what the difference in quality will be, if any, but we are in our (laughs) spacious Long Island studio uh, for this recording. (laughs)
1: Studio, aka dining room. Uh, yeah, and you'll remember uh, Paul, my dad, from our Gettysburg Ghosts episode, and if you're on Patreon, we also did an interview with him for our uh, post-Paul is Dead, not Dad, but Paul McCartney <laughs> yes. um, episode. Uh,
0: they're both still very much alive.
1: <laughs> yes, they are. I think we came came down to that pretty easily. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Paul Ferrante, my dad, he's an author, baseball history expert, retired teacher, and much like myself, a collector of many pet topics. And what we're discussing today is something that dad here has a lot of experience in researching, the Tower of London. Ooh. So dad, tell us a little bit about how you came to learn so much about London's Bloody Tower.
2: Well, I <clears throat> first visited the tower with my wife on a trip to London years ago and then later on Caroline as you remember we took you uh, which was a, a great family outing uh, a lot of a lot, a lot of fun a typical Ferrante family outing
0: this was right after you'd done the Jack the Ripper tour presumably
2: uh, yes uh, we had done the Jack the Ripper tour and now we were at the Tower of London but um, you know as I mentioned, Back when we did the Gettysburg show, Uh, I'm the author of a series of young adult uh, paranormal mysteries that are all based on history. It's the T.J. Jackson Mysteries. And I knew that sooner or later I would get along, um, get around to talking about the Tower of London. So in book number six, which is the latest volume, the, uh, the kids, TJ, his friend Bortnicker, and um, TJ's adopted cousin Luann, who comprise the ghost hunting team known as the Junior Gonzo Ghost Chasers, who have their own uh, cable TV show. They're over in London because their show is being included um, in the package of a new um, Adventure Channel international uh, station. So they're there for the uh, the grand um, opening, if you want, uh, the gala for the uh, beginning of this new channel. And while they are in London, they are summoned quite unexpectedly to Buckingham Palace, where the Queen... Asks them to look into some strange goings on in the Tower of London.
0: Wow! Right at the in the first quarter of the book, here we're meeting uh, the Qe2 herself.
2: That's right. Um, so they go and they, you know they they find out that some weird stuff's been going on. She would like them to get to the bottom of it, and so that's the premise of the book. They're going to do this investigation, but. Uh, In order to do this, even though I had been to the Tower twice myself, it still took a lot of research, a a few months of reading everything I could get my hands on as far as the Tower, watching a lot of documentaries. There was a great uh, documentary recently on Smithsonian Channel on the Tower of London, which if uh, our listeners haven't watched, uh, you should try to get a hold of that and watch that. That was really tremendous. And uh, there's a lot of stuff on YouTube. Um, what was very helpful was a lot of videos that were taken by tourists visiting themselves. Mm. So I got to learn from all these uh, different avenues about the Tower of London and make it come
0: alive in the book. Well, and that's a great way, the YouTube videos and stuff, that just to give you a sense of place, right, of all the different sections of the um, tower. Uh, for the, Our listeners might enjoy that uh, there's sort of an analog of Zach Bagans in these, in these books, who's sort of the kid's mentor, right?
2: Yeah, his name is Mike Weinstein, uh, but he is loosely based on uh, the famous Zach Bagans, who you guys, of course, have mentioned many times. He is their mentor. He gets them started in this whole ghost hole, uh, hunting thing. And uh, they end up having their own show, their own very successful cable show, which is what leads them to London
0: when the book begins. Uh, does does our Mike Weinstein know that there is a Mike Weinstein in these books?
1: Yeah, so one of our patrons, actually, is my old friend from college, Mike Weinstein. And Dad started re- uh, writing these books while I was in college, and I think he liked Mike's name so much that he just named this character after him. So we have a, a patron officially... In the books.
0: It's our very own Comfy Mike. That's one yep, more that's reason comfy to get involved. Mike.
1: <laughs> yeah, so as you can probably tell, listeners, from the title of this episode, there are, there's centuries and centuries of history um, at the Tower of London. We're not going to go into every little bit of minutiae. We are going to concentrate on the more gruesome end because... Because uh, that's
0: our bread and butter, baby. That's what we
1: do. So the gore and ghosts of the Tower of London. But let's begin with the origin of the tower itself, Uh, because you know I love to start with a little history. The Tower of London, officially called Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London.
0: Well, it sounds a lot nicer that way.
1: (laughs) Is not necessarily just a tower. It is actually a castle, which is located on the north bank of the River Thames in central London. The history of the tower goes way back, to basically the origins of the British monarchy itself. The almost impossible sounding year of 1066.
0: Impossible, impossibly far away. It sounds mean? so
1: far away, it, I don't know. 1066 just sounds like a weird year. I don't know.
0: Sure. <laughs> it's an important year, isn't it? And a lot
1: of stuff happened? Uh yeah, including this. On October 14th, 1066, William the Conqueror, the Duke of Normandy, won the battle of hastings which he fought against the english army under king harold godwinson and uh, harold was descended from Knut? canute
0: oh yeah canute uh, canute the great
1: canute the great
0: we've talked about good old canute before friend of the <laughs> friend of the pop. oh
1: yeah canute uh, was a viking who won the throne of england in the early 1000s Harold would become the last crowned Anglo-Saxon English king as William made good on his name and, well, he conquered uh, thanks to the decisive victory in the aforementioned battle. William had what eventually would become the Tower of London built onto the southeast corner of what remained of Roman's town walls demarcating the area of London. So they're even older. uh, Some of this structure is even older than 1066, and the River Thames also provided additional protection from the south. So
0: was it his majesty's whatever and such and such when he built it?
1: now it's her majesty. Uh, Work on the white tower of the castle, the strongest point of the structure, and what gives the tower its name, likely began in 1078, but may not have been completed until after William's death in 1087, though it was created with grand accommodations for the king inside.
0: That's why he's not William the Builder. (laughs)
1: <laughs> sure. But, um, you know, as you can tell by the title and it's, you know, being a castle, it's really not just a fortress. Uh, there are residences and um, well, I mean, now it's a tourist destination, but people lived there pretty normally before people started getting imprisoned there.
0: Like nice apartments, like for, for nobles?
1: Yes. Uh, the first recorded prisoner himself uh, of the tower was Bishop Ranulf Flembard who was imprisoned there in uh, 1100 and loathed for his imposition of harsh taxes. Flambard was also the first escapee from the tower, climbing out with the assistance of a smuggled rope. Now, Dad, why don't you tell us a little bit about the people who guard the
2: tower itself?
0: Now, is it like Beefeaters, like at uh, Buckingham?
2: Well, that's the term that's used, Beefeaters, and... Uh, I'll refer to my book because one of the main characters in the book that assists the kids in their investigation is a guy by the name of uh, Tom Plummer, and uh, he is what they call a yeoman warder, uh, a ceremonial guardian. And in order to become a yeoman warder, you just don't answer an ad in in the newspaper or something like that.
0: Oh, my credentials are really, you
2: know. No, you're not eligible. You have to have served in the the military in Britain. Uh, Plummer in this book uh, had served in the Royal Marines as an officer uh, in both Desert Storm and the Iraqi campaigns. Uh, You have to compile a host of commendations you have to have a lengthy career. Uh, Tom serves for 23 years uh, in the book. And upon his retirement, he uh, applies to uh, the Tower of London for a yeoman warder position. So in order to do this, you're talking about um, uh, a situation where it's a slow and kind of arduous road. Like in London, you know, if you know anything about London taxis, they have to master what's called the knowledge, which is like an encyclopedic grasp of every street in the city. Well, yeoman warders have to learn about 900 years of British history uh, and be able to play to the crowds, sometimes (laughs) numbering in the hundreds in a 55 minute tour They have to be entertaining. They have to be enlightening. Walk backwards. Uh, They have to do all kinds of stuff. Uh, They have to wear those ridiculous uniforms. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happens is that uh, in the book, uh, Tom had been assigned a a veteran, Yeoman Warder, as a mentor. He was issued a thick binder of facts that he would have to literally memorize. And... um, So with the help of his wife, Robin, he scribbled all these notes on Post-its and he sticks them up all over his apartment so he can memorize them and she can test him on it. And um, after three months of intense prep, there's a midterm exam uh, with the Yeoman Jailer, spelled G-A-O-L-E-R, to see if he had the goods to continue. And um, if you go through that and you do okay, three months later, you have to do a complete tour with an audience of one, the tower governor, and you have to pass that too. Then it's time for hopefully the proudest moment in one's life, uh, as it is in Tom's, when you have to take the oath as a yeoman warder in the presence of the entire regiment. And, And the oath goes like this. I, Thomas Plummer, do swear to serve Her Most Sacred Majesty Elizabeth II, both faithfully and truly, in the office I am now called into, that is, to be a yeoman warder in the Tower of London. Then you get fitted for an extremely expensive and elaborately tailored traditional Mm -hmm. everyday uniform, Mm -hmm. and in addition, a state dress uniform that will distinguish the wearer as a yeoman warder. And by the way, there are female yeoman warders. And um, so, you know, then, then you start your term. And there are 37 yeoman warders assigned to the tower. And in principle, you're responsible for looking after any prisoners in the Tower of London, which, you know, hasn't been done for a while. And you are entrusted with the safeguarding of the British Crown Jewels. In reality, though, you're a tour guide, <laughs> and on any given day, you're expected to be a combination historian, dramatic actor, and comedian. Uh, you have to be in good shape because you're going to do a lot of walking, and that uniform is heavy, especially in the summer.
0: Um, I was uh, so re- very sort of similar to being Gaston at Disney World. Yeah, big th- heavy costume.
2: That that kind of a thing, and what I did was I went on YouTube, and like I said before, there are so many tourists who have taped their um, their tours in the Tower of London. So I'll just give you the opening spiel from one of these people, which is what I use in the book. So your uh, yeoman warder will say, you know, after dramatically clearing his or her throat, "Good evening, ladies and gentlemen," and then you know they wait to see who's going to respond. Um, I'd like to welcome you all to Her Majesty's Royal Palace and Fortress of the Tower of London. My name is Tom Plummer, and it will be my pleasure to guide you around this wonderful fortress and tell you a little about its history. These cobbled paths beneath your feet have been trodden upon by kings and queens and traitors and criminals. I will impart to you this evening tales of intrigue and romance, execution and murder. And it all began in the year 1066 with the victory of William the Conqueror, who came here from Normandy, defeated the English, and then set to building this magnificent fortress to prove to all that he was serious about the whole thing. (laughs) And that's how it starts. And then it goes from there. And uh, I'm sure Caroline remembers the wonderful tour. We went on walking all over the tower's grounds.
0: Were they doing bits?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's it's a tour guide and they're very very good at what they do. Nowadays, it's more of a tour. Um, They are entrusted. I mean, they are guards. I'm pretty sure they're still doing nightly walks around and making sure no one's being sketchy. You suppose the crown jewels are still hanging around in the tower? They are, but um, I think it's a little more high tech nowadays. It's not just you know Tom having to guard them. It's also like very you know, like heist movie kind of things. Sure, Tom Cruise has to come in, not touch the floor. Yes, and they also are uh, the ones that are looking out for the ravens of the Tower of London. Uh, And they have for a while, but certainly now. And the Ravens are not a Baltimore football team. Uh, They are a group of at least six captive Ravens, the actual bird.
0: Not Ray Lewis. No.
1: They live at the Tower of London, and it's tradition that their presence uh, protects the crown and the tower. The superstition basically goes, if the Tower of London Ravens are lost or fly away, the crown will fall and Britain with it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So the tower's official historian believes that the tower's raven mythology is likely to be a Victorian flight of fantasy, uh, with the earliest known reference to the ravens at the tower uh, in captivity being an illustration from 1883. But, I mean, they're still making sure those birds are there. They don't, they don't want the monarchy to fall.
0: Sure, because of all the tourist money would dry up.
1: Right. So uh, there have been many renovations and additions uh, made over the years since you know, it was first built, there was expansions, added walls, and of course they added a moat because it wouldn't be fun without a moat.
0: Well, you're calling it a castle. Let's have yeah. the class to put a moat in. But
1: we're going to yada, yada, yada that a little bit and um, talk about what you're all really here for, the gruesome part of the tower's history.
0: Uh, yeah, the, the ghosts and the gore, I think, is in the episode <laughs> title, right?
1: Yes. Um, there's a reason that the tower isn't really known as a castle. It's because along with being a fortress, it's known as English history's bloodiest prison. And maybe it's not the actual bloodiest, but it's kind of what everyone thinks of as like the most horrible place to be and the most haunted place in London, which is a very old place. So it's got to have some ghosts for
0: sure. Right. Well, um, One thing that struck me was uh, Paul had just said the guards are responsible for guarding the prisoners, but there's no real, there hasn't been prisoners there for a long time. When's the last time uh, there were prisoners in the Tower of London?
2: Well, I can't give you the exact date, but I can tell you probably the most notable recent prisoner was Rudolf Hess. Now, Rudolf Hess was Adolf Hitler's um, deputy chancellor. Back in the early days of the Nazi regime, he was a fanatical, uh, totally devoted to Hitler uh, type of guy. And um, in the beginning of the war, he thought that, and he was kind of a nutbag as well. well he, th- he, a Nazi. he Yeah, he thought that he alone could broker some kind of a peace agreement um, or treaty between uh, the UK... And Nazi Germany, so uh, Mister Hess took it upon himself. He was a trained pilot. He took it upon himself to fly to England. I believe he crash landed in Scotland.
0: Was this one man invasion? Thing? Uh,
2: yeah, was immediately apprehended. I guess uh, demanded to see whoever was in charge. Take me to your leader. And once they found out who it was, he was promptly uh, dispatched to the Tower of London, where he sat out the rest of the war. And uh, much to the chagrin of Hitler, by the way, this was a totally unauthorized trip. <laughs> uh, and then after the war, he was uh, convicted of war crimes. And he spent quite a few years in a place called Spandau prison in, uh, in Germany. Um, in fact, he was, at the end, the last inhabitant of the entire prison under Allied guard. But during the war, he uh, kind of sat it out in the Tower of London.
0: Well, that might have saved him from getting executed for war crimes. He didn't have time to, to do all of them because he I was locked up. I
2: guess, yeah. So
1: he's definitely one of the more recent ones. Um, but back in the day, because you know it had 15-foot-thick solid stone walls enclosing the entire place, it was very sturdy. So that's where the royals started to imprison their foes. And there were many, including some royals themselves, And these people would spend their final days awaiting their executions at the tower. Now, this really began in the Tudor period, and that brings us back to our old nemesis. Oh, Henry Tudor. The serial killer himself, King Henry VIII. Friend of the pod. Uh, No, maybe you, not me. (laughs) But we're not going to get to Henry just yet. It starts a little while before Hank enters the picture with the story of the princes in the tower. This is one of those, uh, the first murder conspiracy stories I ever remember hearing, and it was thanks to one of those Travel Channel ghost shows you were so fond of showing me, Dad. Uh, It was a show about the hauntings of the Tower of London, which we will get into near the end of our episode. But I was a kid myself at the time we watched it, and so learning about the princes in the Tower really creeped me out because they were young. They were the sons of King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. And the older son, King Edward, or who would become King Edward V, was supposed to become the King of England. In April 1483, Edward IV died suddenly of a short illness. And so his son was, of course, supposed to assume the throne. Uh, Edward IV's brother, Richard, the Duke of Gloucester. Gloucester? Gloucester? Gloucester. Gloucester?
0: I I think it probably depends on what part of England you're from, but (laughs) I would say Gloucester. Gloucester.
1: Uh, He was designated by Edward himself to be Lord Protector for his nephew because Edward V, the prince, was only 12 years old at this time and really not ready to rule the country. As Lord Protector, old Tricky Dick would assume the role of regent in the child's place until Edward V was old enough to formally rule on his own. And it seems this was not enough power for Richard because later that month, he had a whole group of the boy's relatives and allies arrested, including his uncle, Anthony Woodville, and half-brother, Sir Richard Gray.
0: Well, yeah, of course he did. Otherwise, they're going to make a bunch of noise when he murders this child. (laughs) Uh,
1: These two were beheaded at Pontrefact Castle in June. Then Richard took possession of the 12-year-old King Edward himself, which prompted the king's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, to flee to sanctuary at Westminster Abbey with her other son, Richard the Duke of York, who was uh, nine years old, and her daughters. So there were still plans being made for Edward V's coronation, but the date kept on being postponed, kind of like a a Tinder date that keeps on ghosting you. (laughs) Yeah. And the child was sent to the Tower of London. Now, this was not necessarily a harbinger of bad things to come, uh, as it would become later. This was the traditional residence of monarchs awaiting coronation. And they still
0: had a residence there.
1: Yeah. So everything's still kind of on the up and up, aside from the beheadings. Um... But also his younger brother, Richard, the Duke of York. Now, there's a lot of Edwards and Richards in this, and I apologize.
0: That's not your fault. That's the Tudor's fault. (laughs) Yes.
1: Uh, So young Richard was also taken from sanctuary and placed in the tower in mid-June. And then soon after, Lord Mayor of London, Dr. Ralph Saha? It seemed like a very interesting name. It also
0: felt like two names, but that's British nobility. <laughs>
1: uh, he preached a sermon claiming the elder Richards, this is the uncle, the Duke of Gloucester, to be the only legitimate heir to the throne.
0: Oh, tricky dick.
1: Yeah. This prompted a group of lords, knights, and gentlemen, as they were called, to petition Richard to take the throne on June 25th. The young princes were both declared illegitimate by Parliament at this time, with the Act of Parliament stating that Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville's marriage had really been invalid because he'd had a pre-contract of marriage with Lady Eleanor Butler.
0: So obviously, Richard had some had something something to offer these guys.
1: Yeah, it's all semantics. So Richard, the Duke of Gloucester, was crowned King Richard III yes, that shady hunchback from the Shakespeare play, (laughs) on July 6th, 1483. Richard had moved from dead brother to becoming king all in the space of a couple months. Dominic Mancini, an Italian friar who visited London in the 1480s and was in the area during this time, wrote that after Richard III took the throne, the young princes were taken into the inner apartments of the tower until they were seen less and less and eventually disappeared completely.
0: Can we presume the inner apartments were less comfortable too?
1: Probably, yeah.
0: Big nods from Paul.
1: (laughs) Mancini also wrote that Edward, uh, this is the young Prince Edward, so the 12-year-old, he had regularly seen a doctor before his vanishing and that he sought remission of his sins by daily confession and penance because he believed that death was facing him. There are reports of the princes being seen playing on tower grounds shortly after the younger Richard was placed in the tower with his brother, but there are no recorded sightings of the pair after the summer of 1483 when Richard III was crowned.
0: Sure, he doesn't need appearances anymore.
1: Yeah. So, of course, this leads to the obvious conclusion. The boys were murdered, most likely on orders from their dastardly Uncle Dick uh, to prevent anyone who might want to overthrow his claim to the throne with actual legitimate heirs.
0: But this isn't like officially, uh, it's not a matter of historical record? No one
1: knows what happened to them.
2: I will say that way back in the 1600s, workmen... Uh, uncovered a chest when they were shoring up the base of a staircase uh, in, in, I believe, the White Tower. And upon opening it, they found the bones of two skeletons, apparently young boys. This find matched the profile of the two princes that had gone missing a couple of centuries before. And what happened was uh, the skeletons were interred at Westminster Abbey as royalty, which pretty much closed the case. Uh, and as far as we know, that's that's where it comes to an end. However, there had been reports over the years of strange noises and such in the White Tower and everywhere that are attributed to to the boys. And of course, that, that's going to play a big role in my story. So the young princess uh, story is definitely a sad and compelling one. And it, it merits being spoken about because um, really, um, it, it illustrates just what some of these higher ups would do to, uh, to come to power, even if they were murdering their own relatives, even
0: children. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, Well, that is harrowing stuff. Hey, when you decided you were going to do a Tower of London book, was it like, oh, I already know just what ghost I want to go to? Or um, was there some kind of ghost selection process?
2: There are so many to choose from, I actually had to narrow it down. Uh, the Young Princes play into it. And uh, another one that Carol Caroline is going to uh, sp- speak about, the famous Anne Boleyn. And then uh, one that a lot of people might not have heard too much about it, and I'll get to her when uh, when you get to the uh, King Henry the Eighth stuff
0: fantastic, and we love as as stated, love King Henry the Eighth stuff.
2: Well, we
1: love his story uh, not a great guy, but yeah, it's a very interesting um, story behind the excavation of the skeletons. Uh, These skeletons found by the workmen were small, and so they looked like children, but these were also not the first children's skeletons found in the tower, because two other children had also been found earlier in an old walled-up chamber. Boys? Well, they could have very well been the remains of the two princes. I'm not sure if they were able to tell what gender they were back in the 1600s. Um, But this box of bones, one anonymous report stated that the bones were found with pieces of rag and velvet about them, which um, the latter of which, the velvet, might have been an indicator that they were nobility.
0: Not something your average kid is wearing.
1: Right. And as Dad mentioned, um, it seems that King Charles II, who was the monarch when these bodies were found... He did believe that they were royal because they were placed in an urn and interred in Westminster Abbey along with, um, you know, where a a lot of other royals are buried.
0: That's funny because so whoever buried these two corpses they found, obviously the royals figured like, oh, these are those two kids. We have to bury them like royals. But they didn't say, hey, we found those two kids.
1: Well, uh, the epitaph's inscription on their burial site reads... Here lie interred the remains of Edward V, King of England, and Richard, Duke of York, whose long-desired and much-sought-after bones, after over 190 years, were found interred deep beneath the rubble of the stairs that led up to the Chapel of the White Tower, on the 17th of July, in the year of our Lord, 1674. Now, the bones were removed and examined in 1933 and found to indeed belong to two children, and both were around the ages of the princes, but they were most specifically being examined for signs of suffocation, basically murder. And apparently, the investigators didn't check closely to see whether these bones were male or female. What? Right. Yeah, so there's no confirmation on gender.
0: They spent all their time by the mouth, like, looking for (laughs) suffocation.
1: Yes, and the remains were reinterred, and no further examination has taken place since, and that's kind of been a policy of uh, QE2, Miss Elizabeth. She doesn't really love people... um, Digging
0: up her relatives?
1: Well, because there have been certain breaks in the line of succession where she might not have in reality DNA wise as good a claim to the throne as she wants to. There might be people out there who are more directly descended to earlier monarchs, but because of how things have kind of shook out, it's just how it, how it is. And you know, she doesn't want anyone proven that, I guess.
0: You know what, Liz, I'm sure they'd give you a pension. Maybe we enjoy the retirement.
1: (laughs) Uh, She doesn't seem the type. So, yeah, so that's the story of the princes in the tower. And we'll talk about their spirits, as Dad mentioned, um, at the end of our, our tale. But next, we're going to go into the story of three queens. And the tower... Can I ask one last question about the yeah. two princes? Mm-hmm.
0: It's very serious. Do we think this is what that Spin Doctor song is about? <laughs> Okay, sorry, go ahead. You're stupid.
1: All right. The Tower is probably most known for being the place where three queens of England were held and then executed. And those were the two wives of Henry VIII. I was
0: going to say, at least two of them were married to Hank.
1: Uh, That's Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard. And also Lady Jane Grey, also around the same time period, a little later. From the X-Men? No.
0: Oh, Jane. You said Jane Grey? Yes. Okay, great.
1: (laughs) We discussed the uh, the deaths of Anne and Kat, as we called her for clarity, in our Henry VIII Portrait of a Serial Killer episode, but let's talk a little more about their time at the Tower. As we shared in that episode, Anne Boleyn was imprisoned on accusations of adultery, incest, and treason. Six fingers. She, witchery, you know, the, the usual stuff when they hate women. And uh, she was taken to the Tower to await her fate. Her eventual sentence was to be Burnt here within the Tower of London on the green, or else to have thy head smitten off per the king's pleasure. So perhaps it's for the best that Henry chose the latter
0: option. Well, do you think he asked them to give him those two options so that it looked nicer to cut her head off?
1: It was this, I think it was the standard for treason, but he did choose the nicer one. Uh, The king, who claimed to be moved by pity, chose the less harsh death for his discarded wife, but also commanded that the head of the same Anne shall be cut off, and urged Sir William Kingston, constable of the tower, to omit nothing from his orders.
0: And make sure it's the same
1: Anne. Don't swap (laughs) Anne's on me. Yes. Anne attempted to contact the king via many letters but received no response and was forced to endure the executions of her brother George and her other accused sexual partners on Tower Hill, as well as having to watch as the scaffold of her own execution was erected through
0: her window. So it's pretty twisted. Yeah, people aren't kind to monarchs when they decide that they they get to cut their heads off now.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. We've mentioned before that Henry had ordered Anne to be executed with a sword rather than an axe, as it was more likely to be accurate when the time came. And it was, because she was beheaded in a single stroke.
0: Right. Although I I still stand by, I'll take an axe. Heavier. It's, It's coming down with more force. I think I've got a better shot. Hmm.
1: Hmm. Well, Anne would be buried in an unmarked grave in the chapel of St. Peter ad Vincula, which was eventually given a marker during Queen Victoria's reign in 1876. Now, Catherine Howard was Henry's fifth wife. So Anne was the second, Catherine was the fifth. And it's clear by the time of her execution, Henry had run out of whatever mercy he had left in him.
0: And even like excuses, like good excuses for killing his wives.
1: Yeah, her end was a fair bit more brutal than Anne's. She too was convicted of adultery and was brought to the tower on February 10th, 1542 and forced to see the heads of her defenders impaled on London Bridge on her way. So I think we mentioned in that episode that it's kind of uh, a serial killer thing to like show off the the remains of your previous victims like this is going to happen to you.
0: Although to be fair, it's been a king thing for as long as there have been kings.
1: Sure. The night before her execution, Cat is believed to have spent hours practicing how to lay her head upon the block, which had been brought to her at her request. So she's rehearsing her own execution. She's like,
0: I really don't want to screw it up.
1: Cat <laughs> uh, would not receive the courtesy of a nice sharp sword, but was rather sentenced to beheading by axe. She was pale and terrified on the way to her execution, requiring assistance to climb the scaffold but it's said she died with relative composure, reciting traditional final words asking for forgiveness for her sins and acknowledging that she deserved to die a thousand deaths for betraying the king. Come
0: on, don't do that.
1: Yeah. She described her punishment as worthy and just and asked for mercy for her family and prayers for her soul. She was beheaded and also buried in an unmarked grave at the chapel of St. Peter Advincula. Vincula, though she was not identified during the renovations during Queen Victoria's time and is instead commemorated by a marker on the wall. That leaves us with the last queen and one who is not sentenced by Henry, but rather his daughter, Mary. It's fairly complicated, but essentially uh, this queen, Lady Jane Grey, had a claim to the throne through Edward VI, which was Henry VIII's only son. Edward was supposed to have become king, but died at the young age of fifteen in 1553. Before his death, he named Jane, his cousin, as his successor, due to the fact that both he and Jane were Protestant, and Henry's oldest daughter, um, so Henry the ooh, Edward the sixth half sister. Right. Uh, she was a Catholic, and Edward didn't want her ruling. So it's like, well, he figures at least you know me and Jane have the same values. What was her name? Mary.
0: Oh, we've heard of her.
1: Mm -hmm. Edward died on July 6th, and on July 10th, Jane was officially proclaimed Queen of England, France, and Ireland after taking residence in the Tower of London while awaiting her coronation. Unfortunately for Jane, the Privy Council, which is a group of royal advisors, switched their allegiance to Mary Tudor, and Jane was imprisoned at the Tower on July 19th. Jane was tar- charged with high treason, along with her husband, brothers-in-law, and the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer.
0: This is how they treat their queens.
1: Mm-hmm. And of course, all the defendants were found guilty and sentenced to death. Jane's guilt of having treacherously assumed the title and power of the monarch was shown by a number of documents she had already signed as Jane the Queen. Yeah, because she was. She was. She was but that's also treason in this case. It's really ridiculous. Her sentence was to, again, be burned alive on Tower Hill or beheaded as the queen pleases. Some tried to rebel and attempt to save Jane, like her father, the Duke of Suffolk, but But her...
0: The queen there is not Jane, right? She is not choosing her own method of execution. No,
1: this is Queen Mary now. Uh, But her execution was scheduled anyway for February 12th, 1554. That morning, authorities took Jane's husband, Guilford, from his rooms at the tower to the public execution site on Tower Hill, where he was beheaded. A horse and cart brought his remains back to the tower, past the rooms where Jane was staying. So she saw her husband's corpse return, and she is reported to have exclaimed, oh, Guilford, Guilford, you know, screaming, probably. Mm -hmm. And then she was uh, taken out to Tower Green to be beheaded.
0: So she wasn't burnt. That's nice.
1: Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Jane is said to have given this speech on the scaffold. Good people, I am come hither to die, and by a law I am condemned to the same. The fact indeed against the Queen's Highness was unlawful, and the consenting thereunto by me but touching the procurement and desire thereof by me or on my behalf, I do wash my hands thereof in innocency before God and the face of you, good
0: Christian people this day. Um, Is that I didn't do it or I did do it?
1: (laughs) Well, she's admitting to action considered unlawful, but she did declare that I do wash my hands thereof in innocence. And then she recited Psalm 51, which begins, have mercy upon me, O God. Um, And the executioner asked her forgiveness which she granted him. Uh, She said, I pray you dispatch me quickly, which I think we would all want in this situation. Referring to her head, she asked, will you take it off before I lay me down? And the executioner answered, no, madam. So it's like this weird kind of semantic, like, like, am I going to be like this? Am I going to be like this? How
0: does this work? Yeah, do I have to worry about it falling before my (laughs) head hits the... Uh,
1: She then blindfolded herself, and um, she kind of, you know felt around for the block with her hands, but she couldn't find it. So she yelled,
0: should have had some practice.
1: (laughs) She yelled, what shall I do? Where is it? Most likely Sir Thomas Bridges, the deputy lieutenant of the tower, helped her find the block. And this is a very famous painting where he's kind of leading her hands to it. And with her head bent over it, she spoke the last words of Jesus during his crucifixion. Lord, unto thy hands, I command my spirit. And then the axe beheaded her in one clean stroke. She and her husband were taken to, again, the Chapel of St. Peter at Vicula, which I think is like right next door, and buried without memorial. And she would eventually come to be viewed as a Protestant martyr. Mm. But um, we have another story of a a lady executed at the tower, don't we, Dad?
2: Yeah. In my book, uh, T.J. Jackson, uh, you know, they split up when they're doing their investigation. So he happens to... Find himself on what's called Tower Green. Now, since the last time that we uh, visited there, uh, they have um, erected what they call the Executioner's Memorial on the Tower Green, and you know, a nice green space in in kind of the middle part of the uh, the complex. And um, what you look what you're looking at is a circular, double tiered. Glass memorial. And uh, as the bottom disc is a good eight feet wide, um, it, it allows itself um, to display a message that is engraved in it. And it says Gentle visitor, pl- uh, pause a while. Where you stand, death cut away the light of many days. Here, jeweled names were broken from the vivid thread of life. May they rest in peace while we walk the generations around their strife and courage under these restless skies. And then on the top tier of the memorial, somewhat, which is somewhat smaller in diameter, uh, it's ringed with the names of all the royal luminaries that had met their end on that spot. So T.J. is there, with all his ghost hunting equipment, trying to make contact with the other side, when finally uh, an apparition or two apparitions appear to him. And so I'll just read you the passage from the book. There were two women before the him, him of average height, each dressed elegantly in elaborate medieval gowns of silk and lace. However, One of them was fairly covered in blood from a variety of slash gouges in her shoulder, neck, and upper torso, while the other was carrying her head, which which at one time might have been rather pretty, uh, under her arm like a football. Now, the one carrying her head is Anne Boleyn. The other one, though, is someone you might not have heard about, and so... T.J. says, trying to like choke down the bile that is rising in his throat, um, to whom do we have the pleasure of speaking? The rather plain looking woman who had initiation the conversation replied, I am known as Margaret Pole, the former Margaret Plantagenet, the eighth countess of Salisbury, daughter of the Duke of Clarence. Please allow me to apologize for my somewhat horrific appearance. Oh, so... (laughs) (laughs) They're very polite, even in death. Right. So, um, you know, TJ says, you know, um, would you mind uh, telling us uh, your story of how you came to be here? And this is Margaret Pole. And she says, well, of course the fates of both myself and Anne, meaning Bolin, are tied to that dastardly Henry. At the beginning of his reign, you know, I was in his favor. He was at that time married to Catherine of Aragon, of course. Unfortunately, my son Reginald, who had risen to the post of Archbishop of Canterbury, had the poor judgment to speak out about Henry's annulment of his marriage to Catherine. My family was, as a result, harassed and then imprisoned. As for me, I was unceremoniously stripped of my titles and cast into this horrible place as a traitor. And here I sat for two long years until Henry finally tired of me and decided to be done with me. Consequently, he ordered my execution. However, the executioner chosen to dispatch me was inept and missed my neck with the first blow instead gashing my shoulder this prompted me to spring to my feet and stumble away but he gave chase hacking away with nearly a dozen more blows until i was good and dead moral of the story go for the sword <laughs> do not go for the axe <laughs>
0: That's ask, what I was saying, Sean. Asked an answer. There you go. I guess. Yeah, but still, the axe is meant for splitting logs.
2: Yeah, well, your head's
1: not a log.
2: And by the way, there is the executioner's memorial. But if you go into the actual museum uh, that they have there, you will see the actual executioner's block with the indentation, you know, for the person to lay their neck, and a uh, at least one replica of. The broad axe used to do the executions
0: fantastic mm-hmm. the the memorial to the executed is is quite an interesting thing to have um,
1: especially since it's so recent because we went uh, early 2000s so you know i guess they're they're trying to make up for
0: uh, all that horror still oh yeah no i imagined henry didn't install the plaque certainly
1: not no We'll talk about the other unfortunate souls to be held at the Tower of London and the ones that may have never left after the break. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it
0: out. Welcome back. Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie, and we're here with author Paul Ferrante talking about the Ch- the Tower of London. Uh, Carrie, in the A Block, we went through a lot of the uh, historic, uh, the history of the tower, the building, mm-hmm. the famous faces that were imprisoned there and executed there. When are we going to get to the ghosts?
1: We're almost there, but first... Um We're just going to make sure you know that the tower wasn't just a place where nobility would go to get their heads cut off. Other terrible things would happen there as well.
0: Well, I've always thought it was mainly a debtor's prison. Is that not the case?
1: Well, it was a place of torture. I mean, there were just random other people in prison there. You know, we don't know as much about their stories, but... um, 48 people that we know of were also brutally tortured in a variety of ways at the Tower during the 15 and 1600s.
0: Like torture executions or torture for information? Both. Okay.
1: One instrument of torture used was the manacles. As described by one of the surviving victims, quote, They put my wrists into iron gauntlets and ordered me to climb two or three wicker steps. My arms were then lifted up and an iron bar was passed through the rings of one gauntlet, then through the staple and rings of the second gauntlet. This done, they fastened the bar with a pin to prevent it slipping, and then, removing the wicker steps, they left me hanging by my hands and arms fastened above my head. And they did this to a Catholic priest. Um, that is... Because he was Catholic, that was basically the only reason.
0: No, yeah, yeah, sure. I've seen this in movies and stuff. That's like a cartoon prison cell.
1: Yeah, it's kind of what they do to Mel Gibson in Lethal Weapon, where he's being tortured and, like, zapped and stuff. They're just really, like, I mean, it's incredibly painful. You're being stretched beyond your means, and you're trying to stay upright, but it's just a little bit out of your reach.
0: Yeah, in Holy Grail, there's the, um, you know, the Knights of the Round Table song that they do and at one point it cuts to a dungeon where there's just a guy hanging by his yes that's pretty
1: much it yeah now not everyone was as lucky as this uh, stretched out priest because he lived and askew was put on another device the rack to try and get names of Protestant sympathizers out of her
0: All right because this is if hanging is not stretching enough
1: yeah so what do you guys know about the rack
0: um, it's used in some hilarious Muppet physical comedy bits um you know they they strap you down to a uh in in my they do
1: that in muppet treasure island right yeah, on sure, some sort of yes rack. of
0: course and then i think it's gonzo who gets stretched out really really long um yeah you know you, you, your hands are bound to the top of a board that i'm picturing at like a 45 degree angle you got your feet clapped in irons at the bottom and then they just stretch this board out right
2: Yeah. And a a variation on that theme is uh, being drawn and quartered. When a victim is drawn and quartered, his hands and feet are secured to strong horses in a fashion similar to the rack. Then the animals are given a slap on the rump to take off in different directions. Once that person is sufficiently stretched out, the body is hacked into quarters. Sometimes the victims are decapitated and their bowels and heart removed as well as a warning to
0: others. And of course, put on display in the town square because, uh, you know, are we going to talk about the braking wheel again? We, we uh...
2: No
1: wheel this time, but um, yeah. So with the rack, it, it, was, it was that kind of torturous stretching. Uh, and so, askew... So
0: what's the actual effect? I mean, your, your limbs are being pulled out of their sockets...
1: Yes, you are just being completely ripped apart, basically. I mean, your limbs are being pulled out, your your muscles are being torn, bones are being being broken. So Anne wrote in her diary after her first torture, Because I lay still and did not cry, my Lord Chancellor and Master Rich took pains to rack me with their own hands till I was nigh dead. And Askew was so physically damaged by the rack that she had to be carried to her execution because she was unable to walk on her own anymore. I mean, it was, and this is, she's still alive at that point. Um, she was burned at the stake, so she didn't get a beheading.
0: Out of the frying pan, huh?
1: Yeah, and she was the only woman known to be tortured at the tower. So being stretched is obviously terrible torture, but what about being unstretched?
0: You mean being crushed? We call that being crushed.
1: <laughs> well, this in this case, compression was the torture, and it was done using the device eerily known as the scavenger's daughter. What? hmm This device would hold the body in a tight kneeling position, which would soon become incredibly painful. One version of the instrument involves a set of handcuffs that also binds the neck and ankles, further twisting the victim into an excruciating position. Eventually, your lungs would fill with blood, and I'm going to assume you die.
0: This is just from like crunching you down into like a head between your knees. And like
1: twisting you around. Yeah. Guy... I saw a Guy
0: doing that at Venice Beach for like, like just for people to throw quarters in his hat.
1: Well, he should have gone to the Tower of London. They probably would have said he was a witch and burned him. But still. Guy Fox was probably the most famous prisoner of the tower actually subjected to torture because the queens and the nobility were not. Fox, as you may know, was the ringleader of what is known as the Gunpowder Plot, where he and his conspirators planned to assassinate King James I during the state opening of Parliament by blowing up Parliament itself with, you guessed it, barrels full of gunpowder. Uh
0: Remember, remember the 5th of November.
1: Yes, and... Interestingly, uh, England still commemorates this with bonfire night. Um.
0: Uh, although the meaning has changed.
1: Yeah, a little bit. It, it was
0: like a state holiday. My understanding, I've, I've never been to England on bonfire night, my understanding is November 5th was meant to be like, hey, remember, this is what'll happen to you if you rise against us. And now it's a little bit more like, oh, maybe we're kind of celebrating him though. Fly your freak flag. Let's, uh, <laughs> sure. you know, you stand up for what's right.
1: Mm-hmm. So obviously his plan failed and he was imprisoned in the tower. It's unknown whether... Fox was forced onto the rack or into the scavenger's daughter, but he certainly was subjected to the manacles, which damaged his hands so badly that his handwriting had changed by the time of his written confession. You could see there's like comparisons all shaky and messed up. And he was executed particularly brutally, right, Dad?
2: Right. He had been tortured uh, to try to give up the names of the other people who were in on the plot, and uh, he, he eventually did give them up.
0: What, and, what was the torture? The you two, Yeah, yes, yeah, okay, the manacle.
2: Right. Well, I mean, um, according to the research that I did, he, he was subjected to the rack at one time, and so he re- went through quite a bit. And then it was decided that after all of that, he was going to be drawn and quartered, um, as as I you know described before. And uh, legend has it that Guy Fox, out of all the conspirators, was the last of the bunch to go to the scaffold. However, weakened by his torture, he fell from the scaffold ladder and, <laughs> and broke his neck. Oh, yeah. Not good, not good at all.
0: That's it's actually, I mean, hey, he's getting out easy on the execution.
2: Right, well, not exactly. He, uh, so he, he is executed, and then he was drawn and quartered, and his body parts were distributed to the farthest corners of the kingdom for public viewing as a deterrent to those who would conspire against the monarchy.
0: Wow, doesn't it just warm your heart?
1: I mean, it would definitely make me not want to blow up Parliament.
0: Oh, for sure. But I haven't had a particular desire to blow up Parliament.
1: That's probably for the best. Yeah, so torture at the Tower was eventually discontinued in the 17th century, thanks to criticism that the practice was not only cruel, but would also lead victims to basically say whatever they could um, to, you know, whatever the torturers wanted to hear to get a respite from the pain. So it, it was also ineffective because they usually just got lies or, you know,
0: just like, oh, wait, I'll
1: tell you anything, whatever.
0: Wait, the U.S. military was just arguing about this same thing like five years ago.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how things never change. <laughs> uh, and over the years, the Tower of London has naturally developed a reputation as being quite haunted, thanks to this exact dark and bloody history. Many of these hauntings have been identified as specific people, as we've mentioned so far. So let's go through some of the most famous stories of tower specters. Mm. And you'll see on some website, it'll be like 13 ghosts of the Tower of London. It's always 13 ghosts.
0: Well, that's because it's that's also it's the spooky. title of a movie, right? Yes. Yeah, it's just a spooky number.
1: Yes, but these are kind of the big names. One is said to be Lady Arbella Stewart, who had the misfortune of marrying the nephew of Lady Jane Grey. And uh, the nephew was named William Seymour. Apparently, this marriage was seen as a threat to the crown and had not been given the permission of King James I. And he's the one after Elizabeth I. So Arbella was put under house arrest while William was sent to the tower. Arbella tried her hardest to get William released so they could escape together to France. But William missed the rendezvous and Arbella set sail by herself.
0: Oof. Oof to both.
1: Sadly, she was recognized and sent back to London and found herself now locked in the tower as well. William ironically managed to escape, but Arbella was not so fortunate. She died in the tower in 1615 at the age of 39.
0: Well, maybe William would have come back if you'd waited for him.
1: <laughs> I think she did, but I don't know. You can't break someone out of the tower. I mean, it's hard. You know, He escaped, obviously, but I think it would be much harder to come back and try to break someone out. Some say she was murdered, but officially she is recorded as having died in September of 1615 from illnesses exacerbated by her refusal to eat. So she starved herself to death.
0: Hey, everybody loves a prison break movie, but there's not a lot of prison break like period pieces.
1: Mm, That's true.
0: So I think a Tower of London prison break movie would be fun. Also, like an Alcatraz prison break movie in the 30s would be fun.
1: Well, I think there have been that,
0: those All right, well, let's just watch one of those.
1: (laughs) But the Tower of London one, let's put a pin in that. I like that idea. Nowadays, Arbella is thought to haunt the Queen's House residence in the Tower, particularly what is known as the Lennox Room. It seems every resident of the house has experienced something strange happening in that particular room, including Governor of the Tower Major General Joffrey Field, who shared this story. Soon after we'd arrived in 1994, my wife Janice was making up the bed in the Lennox room when she felt a violent push in her back, propelling her right out of the room. Women staying in the room overnight there have also reported being awoken by feelings of being strangled. So.
0: And this is the former, I mean, not on the former resident, but the former like guy in charge.
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was in charge for like 20
0: years or something. You would think he would want to like slap those rumors down if they were just rumors.
1: I guess not. There are a lot of yeomen who report things uh, in these stories. The princes in the tower as well have been spotted in a spectral form. Their ghosts are often seen wearing nightgowns, uh, clutching each other in terror or holding hands in the castle's rooms. And two cold stream guards reported hearing the ghostly sounds of children giggling outside of the tower back in 1990. They've also apparently been seen playing on the battlements and around the grounds and gliding down the stairs together.
0: It is a tourist attraction, so I bet you people here are giggling all the time.
1: Well, I think this was at night. Okay,
0: <laughs> that's that's creepy.
1: Catherine Howard is more often said to haunt Hampton Court Palace, where she was arrested, even causing the Palace Gallery to be nicknamed the Haunted Gallery due to the experiences of chills, strange sensations, and unexplained moving shadows inside. The Tower of London itself housed a menagerie back in the day, basically a a zoo of all the exotic animals the royals were gifted by other dignitaries, including lions, jackals, and elephant And more. One of these animals was a bear, and apparently the spirit of a black bear is reported to have appeared near the Martin Tower in 1816.
0: How do you feel about animal ghosts?
1: I don't know how I feel about it. I think it, I mean, animals have souls, so. We
0: both believe, in my opinion. We both believe strongly in the Greyfriars Bobby, obviously.
1: Obviously, so that's an obvious animal ghost that's absolutely real. E.L. Swift wrote, one of the sentries at the Martin Tower was alarmed by a figure like a huge bear emerging from underneath the floor. He thrust at it with his bayonet, bayonet which stuck in the door. He dropped it in a fit and was carried senseless to the guard room. Of all this, I avouch nothing more than that I saw the poor man in the guardhouse prostrated in terror, and that in two or three days the fatal result was that he died. He was so scared of this bear ghost, he just died of fright.
0: Did he say before he passed? Uh, it's because I'm so scared of the bear.
1: I guess so. <laughs> it's
0: like, how do you know?
1: Uh, they said, this place has so much history. It doesn't even have uh, only human ghosts. We got we got a bear running around.
0: I love it. Is that the only um, exotic animal people have seen? Is there like a ghost chimpanzee throwing ghost poop at people?
1: <laughs> as far as I know, but they did find the bones of at least a couple of lions buried, um, you know, just in the area. And these were lions that are like medieval lions that don't exist anymore. Uh, the very humongous skeletons. So, I mean, maybe there's just a couple of lions around too. This is crazy. Just like, just a lion ghost.
0: <laughs> I mean, the bear ghost or the lion ghost. Who do you think you have an easier time, like convincing to leave you alone? The bear seems friendly, right? Unless she's got ghost cubs.
1: Yeah, that's true. Probably the bear.
0: All right, good. We'll put a pin in that. That's maybe (laughs) our whole podcast next week.
1: (laughs) The most famous ghost of the Tower of London is also one that has been reported the most, that, of course, of Anne Boleyn. One famous story is that of a captain of the guard who apparently saw light flickering in the locked Chapel Royal late one night. Attempting to figure out who could possibly be in there, the guard climbed a ladder to peek inside and saw an unbelievable scene. He reported seeing a procession of knights and ladies in Tudor-era garments walking through the chapel, led by an elegant figure with an obscured face that resembled images of Anne Boleyn he'd seen in paintings.
0: I mean, she had six fingers. Does that count?
1: (laughs) The procession eventually faded and disappeared, leaving the guard staring into a dark and empty old church.
0: I mean, look, that's a lot. That's not hearing a kid's voice from around the corner or something.
1: Right, and so Anne shows up in your book, Dad, and what's what's she doing in the story?
2: Well, basically, she's there to to tell her story uh, about her execution to TJ and the kids. Um, You know, as I said, she shows up with uh, Margaret Pole, and um, they are, are quite a sight together. You know, one's all hacked up and. Anne happens to be carrying her head with her, but um, she probably is the uh, the key spokesman for the the ghost contingent
0: in my book. You'd you'd want to get a handbag for that at a certain <laughs> point. Just holding it all the time would be. Well,
1: that's kind of a legend about her is that you see her uh, beheaded uh, with no head covered in blood, perhaps. And often she is carrying her own head, which is very jaunty and fun.
0: That is, yes, very jaunty and fun.
1: Maybe this site is what uh, scared a sentry patrolling the White Tower in 1817, who is said to have suffered a fatal heart attack after encountering her spirit on a staircase.
0: Well, again, did someone come to him and he's lying on the staircase going, I saw Ed Boleyn, in the he's dead? I'm
1: assuming that must be it. Now, the most famous story tells of a human on duty near the lieutenant's lodgings who spotted a spectral woman's figure with no head in the courtyard and attempted to confront the spirit because he thought it was just a, a lady. Did you say a human on duty? Human. Oh. <laughs> also a human.
0: Like you're an alien <laughs> re- pretending to be a human being. They're one of your human guards.
1: So he tries to confront this lady and she gives no response. So I guess he went from zero to 100 real quick because he attempted to charge through the figure with his bayonet. Wait, what? Yeah. (laughs)
0: I'm going to pay very close attention if I'm ever there. These guards really don't screw around.
1: Absolutely not. Uh, And apparently he went straight on through and an officer named General Dundas lodged in the bloody tower saw the whole thing unfold below his window. So there was a witness to this.
0: He thought that it was not a ghost. So imagine just seeing a woman from behind and saying, excuse me, mum," And she doesn't turn around and then you just go, I'm going to bayonet charge this person.
1: <laughs> I don't know if he saw her from behind. I think he might have seen a figure that he couldn't see the face and he was freaking out. Now, this guard, um, after running through this ghost, promptly fainted. Uh, Hilariously, the military court martial wanted to charge the guard with fainting on duty and (laughs) abandoning his post. But General Dundas himself, who witnessed the whole thing, testified at his trial to say that he had a very good reason for his loss of consciousness. He was let off.
0: The general saw Anne Boleyn also? Yep.
1: Wow. Saw the whole thing. The ghost of Anne Boleyn is also said to uh, be seen walking throughout the church near the tower where she had been unceremoniously buried down the aisle of the church towards her grave underneath the altar. Uh, Now, after we conclude here, I'll leave you with a bit of the song, With Her Head Tucked Underneath Her Arm. Oh, how appropriate. (laughs) By the Kingston Trio, which is a fascinating bit of music history and one of the only songs I can think of uh, that's written about a specific ghost. This darkly humorous song was written in 1934 and originally performed by Stanley Holloway. But first, thank you, Dad, for joining us.
2: It was my pleasure, and it was great to talk about someplace that we have shared and uh, that holds so much history and fascination for people the world over. It's one of the most visited places. Uh, It is the most visited castle on Earth, the most famous castle on earth and i really encourage anybody who has the chance when they go to london to visit the tower of london but uh, just a word of advice get there early and uh, budget uh, pretty much an entire day because there's so much to see
0: now i'm very interested in taking a trip to london but i'm just worried that when i get there I won't know where to go. So if if there was a book that was like a novel, but also a travelogue sort of, that would uh, really, I don't know if you could help me out with that.
2: Yes, I I would check out Terror in the Tower, a T.J. Jackson mystery, number six by the aforementioned Paul Ferrante, available on Amazon in paperback and um, in uh, Kindle. And um, it's a fun read, but it's also pretty much, uh, a travelogue for the Tower of London, and uh, I even throw in a Jack the Ripper tour uh, in the book for you, based on you know real events, uh, real tours we've gone on, and um, it'll help you get around and see some of the sites.
0: Do you guys remember when they uh, it was some a group in London was collecting money to uh, erect a women's museum, and then it <laughs> turned out it was a it was a Jack the Ripper <laughs> museum?
1: Well. W- We'll get to that soon enough. But yes, uh, so thank you, Dad, for joining. Again, his book is Terror in the Tower, a T.J. Jackson mystery by Paul Ferrante, F-E-R-R-A-N-T-E. You can find that on Amazon and you can find him at paulferranteauthor.com. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll have you back next summer for some other completely different topic that um, we could all chat about.
0: Uh, our next our next pirate podcast will <laughs> uh, we'll get you in to talk about the Bermuda book.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but until then, uh, don't lose your head. <laughs> I don't know.
0: Is that, I guess we don't usually have a need for a sign-off Yeah, yeah. No, that was good. I thought, <laughs> you, I thought you did
1: great. Thanks. Oh, it's time to head out, he says. All right.
0: Goodbye. One last pun.
2: In the Tower of London Lodges life The ghost of Anne Boleyn walks, they declare Well, Anne Boleyn was once King Henry's wife Until he made the headsman bomb her hair Ah, yes, he did her wrong long years ago And she comes up at night to tell him so With her head tucked underneath her arm she walks the bloody tower With her head tucked underneath her arm At the midnight hour She comes to haunt King Henry She means giving him what for That soup she's going to tell him off She's feeling very sore And just in case the headman wants to give her an encore She, she has, has her th- head tucked underneath her arm With her head tucked underneath her arm, she walks the bloody tower with her head tucked underneath her arm at the midnight. American Vigilante, now.
1: No news today, folks. Uh, We're on vacation, so I am doing my best to not look at any news. (laughs) at all (laughs) i need a i need a break
0: not even the fun kind i
1: need a break in my brain
0: it's just the tide charts for carrie this week
1: yes well i'm i'm a big beachcomber and so i'm i'm looking at that moon looking at that tide and uh that's all i want to do so enjoy enjoy no news just like i am and enjoy the week Exactly. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com ain'titscary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful.
0: And stickers and other benefits await you on Patreon. Special thanks to our beloved top tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante in the room today. Woo! Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, Christy Atchison, and Ira. We love you guys very much and we'll see you when we're back from break.
1: And also uh, see you next Thursday.
0: Yeah, I don't mean that we're taking next week (laughs) off. We're back from vacation next week. (laughs) Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan. You can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb.
1: Ain't It Scary has been brought to you by Killer Podcasts and is a production of Longboy Media.
2: <laughs> Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on
0: your favorite podcast app and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com